Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> we come before you again as we are about to open your word and we are seeking you in it. Father, we want to see your face. We want to see your glory shining fully in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory is what we seek. And I ask that you would be with me as I stand before my brothers and sisters to serve them in preaching your word. I pray that you would be with me to speak clearly and in ways that are understandable and in ways that bring glory to your name and that they are for their good. Father, I thank you for those who are gathered together this morning. May you be with them. May you be with their minds, their hearts. May you open their minds. May you open their hearts. May you open their ears to hear and to receive your word with glad and joyful hearts. Father, again, we thank you for who you are, your many blessings that you shower upon us that we do not deserve. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Well, if you remember, last week in our time together, we were looking at and considering what the church is and why it exists. And my attempt at a summary statement that I gave was, was this. I said, The church is an assembly of people who have been brought together by God into a covenant relationship with Himself through the cross for the purpose of reflecting Him to the world and enjoying Him forever. That was my attempt at a summary statement of what the church is and why it exists. Now, it's not a perfect statement. It can definitely be added to and can be improved. But anyways, that's the statement I gave. And then we then began to walk through the Bible and we began to unpack the promise of land, seed, and blessing. We did an overview of the Bible, we were looking at that promise, and we were looking at how God had put His people in His place, and they were enjoying His blessing. That was, in, that was His intention from the very beginning, and then we began to see that flow throughout all of Scripture. We said that Adam and Eve were God's people, they were living in God's place, and they were enjoying God's blessing. We then saw that Adam and Eve were then commanded by God to be fruitful and multiply and then fill the earth with a people who would reflect and enjoy Him forever. They failed, however, but God's plan and purpose had not. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that He was going to send a Savior into the world, and He would restore all things. We then saw God make a covenant 
with a man named Abraham. And the covenant that he made with Abraham pointed back to what Adam and Eve were intended to do. They were intended to be God's people, dwelling in God's place, and enjoying God's blessing. And so then God made a covenant with Abraham saying that he was going to make a great nation out of Abraham and that he was going to give this people a land and that through them all of the earth was going to experience great blessing. So he promised them, or he promised Abraham rather, that once again God was going to put his people in God's place and they were going to be enjoying God's blessing. And then we saw that this great nation that God promised Abraham came about when He created the nation of Israel. He then gave them His law. He gave them a land. And for a short amount of time, the nations around Israel experienced blessing because they were making God known. Again, however, we saw failure on the people's part in obeying. So God then punished them. He took away His presence. He took away their land. He took away what He had given to them. But then we saw that God was still faithful in the midst of this because even though Israel was disobedient, we saw that through the prophets, God promised them that He was going to give them a new heart. He was going to put His Spirit within them. He was going to enable them to worship joyfully and to reflect Him as they were intended to do. And so then we came to the New Testament where we saw Jesus come on the scene and begin to gather a people to Himself. Now, something that I failed to mention last week that I should have brought up was what... Jesus says when He first begins His earthly ministry. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and He begins His earthly ministry, He tells the people, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And sometimes He says kingdom of God. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Now what does He mean by that? What does He mean by saying the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, remember. Remember the promise that we spent seeing flow through all out Scripture. God's people dwelling in God's place, enjoying God's blessing. Now, where are those things enjoyed as they should be? Where are those three things enjoyed as they should be enjoyed? In God's kingdom, right? And so then you have Jesus, He comes on the scene and He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So what Jesus is showing us is that He is the one who has come to usher in the kingdom of God and all those promises that have been made to His people. He is the promised King and Savior who gathers together the people of God. And that's what we saw last week. Jesus giving His people new hearts. He put His Spirit within them by living for them, dying for them, and then rising from the grave. 
And then He sent them out to further the kingdom that He had come to usher in. Until the day comes when the King Himself, Jesus, comes and brings in the kingdom fully. And so we said, here we are today. We are the people of the kingdom of God. And we are representing King Jesus. We are the people of the kingdom. He is the King. And that is what we are going to be focusing on today in our time together. How we represent Jesus and His kingdom in our local gathering of Christians. So, what the first thing we need to understand is, is who ultimately decides how we gather together and what it is we do when we are gathered together as a local body of believers. So who is it? Who ultimately decides those things? Jesus does. He is the King, remember? And we are the people of His kingdom. So He is the one who ultimately decides and lays out how we gather together and what it is we do when we are gathered together. Because ultimately, we are representing Him in our gatherings. We are representing the name of the Lord Jesus. Whenever Jesus sent out His people, He was in a way telling the world, you want to know what I am like? Look at my people. Look at how they live. Look at how they gather together. Look at how they love one another and listen to the message that is on their lips. And so that means that our foremost concern should be pleasing Him in all the things that we do as a local church. We should be seeking to represent our King well in how we gather together and in the things we do when we gather together. So now the question is, how do we know if we are representing King Jesus well? How do we know if we are doing the things that are pleasing to Him? Well, we go to what He has said. We go to His Word. Because in His Word, He has laid out the example to follow. So if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, that's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time together. And if you remember last week in Matthew chapter 16, we saw Jesus make the statement that He was going to be building His church and that the gates of hell would not be able to overcome it. And He then said that the foundation that that church was going to be built upon was the confession that Peter and the apostles had made about Jesus. And He also showed that the foundation was going to be built upon their authority that He was going to be giving them. It was also going to be built upon the authority of the apostles. And that is what we see begin to happen as the early church began to grow. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Now before I read from verse 42, in Acts, in the beginning of Acts, we see the apostles and the early disciples gathered together in a room. 
They are filled with the Spirit of God. They then go out and begin to preach the Word of God. They preach the Gospel. And then people begin to become convicted. God convicts them and they cry out to Peter and the apostles, what can we do to be saved? What must we be, what must we be doing to be saved? And Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized. And then what we see them do is this. Beginning in verse 42, Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see is this early gathering of believers. They come together. And what they begin to devote themselves to is what Luke says here in verse 42. He says, they begin to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That started right at the get-go. As soon as they became followers of Christ, They were told and they knew that they were to be devoting themselves to certain things. And that's what Luke tells us they were devoting themselves to. And so we are to be devoted to the same. We are to be devoted to these things as well. And so for the rest of our time together, we are going to be walking through these things that we see in Acts verse 42. And we're going to see how they play out in our gatherings today. So we are going to be starting first with the apostles' teaching. We are to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, which was the Word of God. That is what they were constantly feeding the people. They didn't preach to them their own opinions and how they thought things should be. They fed them God's Word. And we see this in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, as the church began to grow, there's a complaint that's brought before the apostles. They're told that there's some widows that are being neglected. You know, the church is beginning to grow and there's nobody that's distributing the daily distributions to them. And so they went to the apostles and they wanted something done about it. Well, this is what the apostles say in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, in doing that, the apostles were not saying, you know, that is a petty need. We're apostles. You know, that is beneath us. We're not supposed to be serving widows. No, that's not what they were saying. What they were saying and what they were showing was that their primary responsibility 
before God was that they were to be preaching the Word of God. That was their primary responsibility. God's Word was to be preached. And so serving widows is not a bad thing. Serving the people of God is a good thing. We are to be doing that. But if it comes to the point where God's Word is is neglected to do these things, then it is a problem. And so what they did is they said, choose among yourselves some godly men who can have that responsibility. So that's what they did. They chose men, they gave them that responsibility, and the apostles were able to continue in their primary responsibility, which was the preaching of God's Word. And so that example is still true for us today. The Word of God is to be preached, and it is to be central when we are gathered together. Not the opinions of man, the opinions of man, but the truth of God. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is what Paul charged Timothy with. And within God's Word being preached, the gospel is to be proclaimed because it is of first, of first importance, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes and says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with with the Scriptures. So that is what God-honoring and Christ-exalting preaching looks like. God's Word being center stage and the Gospel being proclaimed throughout all of the Bible. As the preacher opens God's Word and says what the Bible itself is saying. Not what he thinks, not what his opinion about the world and everything in it is, but what God's Word is saying. And so my responsibility as your pastor, as a preacher of the Word serving in this area, my responsibility is to open God's Word before you and to proclaim what He is saying to you. Not what I think, but what He is saying. And that is also why we practice here what is called expositional preaching. And that just means explaining the Bible. Sunday after Sunday, the Bible is opened and it is verse by verse explained. That is my personal conviction of how the Word of God is to be preached. Now that doesn't mean that you can't preach topical sermon series. This, what we're doing right now, is a topical sermon series. But within it, you can still preach verse by verse from God's Word and proclaim what He is saying. You don't Choose a verse and then manipulate it to what you would like it to say. 
You preach what God is saying. The point of the passage is the point of the sermon. That is the type of preaching that represents King Jesus well, and that is the type of preaching that pleases God. So we are to be devoted to the preaching of God's Word. We are also to be devoted to the public reading of God's Word. Now, we don't see this here in Acts chapter 2, but we do elsewhere. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The public reading of Scripture is important because it again puts God's Word central. It shows that we are gathered together to hear from God. And that's why we, every Sunday throughout our services, read from God's Word. We are showing, when I stand up here, at first I read from God's Word, I'm showing that we are here to hear from God. And then we usually read from it again during our offering. Again, we are saying we are here to hear from God and what He has to say. So the public reading of God's Word, again, puts God's Word at the focus. It is the center of all that we have come to do and to see. We are putting His Word as our focus. And also because just the reading of God's Word proclaims who He is and it has power within itself. Just the reading of God's Word has power within itself. Which is something else about expositional preaching. Preaching verse by verse, the Bible is doing the work. I'm just showing it to you. I'm saying, here it is. Look, this is what it's saying. But the Bible is doing the work. I'm not doing the work. I'm just showing you what God has shown me in His Word. The Bible itself has the power within itself. So we are to be devoted to preaching God's Word, to reading God's Word, and we are to be devoted to singing God's Word. We are to be devoted to singing God's Word. Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We also have the example of the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. A vast library of God's people crying out in poetry and in song who God is for them. And throughout that book, Every one of those psalms are influenced by the truth of who God is and how He has revealed Himself to His people. And so we are to be following that same example in the songs that we sing together, in our gatherings. Because remember, all the things that we are doing are to be pleasing to God and they are to be representing King Jesus well. And that includes the songs that we sing. So our first question, whenever we add new songs to 
our songs list and whenever we sing them, whenever I lay out the order of service, my first question is, is this pleasing to God? And your first question when you sing that song should be, is this pleasing to God? Does it first and foremost represent the King well? Because the point of us singing as Christians is that we have seen God's Word, we delight in it, and it makes us sing, right? So how can we, who are to be singing because of the truth of God, be singing songs that are not filled with the truth of God? So we are to sing songs that are filled with God's Word, with the truth of God's Word, because that is what we are to be about. We are to be about pleasing God and representing the Lord Jesus Christ well. Another thing that we are taught by the apostles that we don't explicitly see here in Acts chapter 2, but elsewhere, is the command to be making disciples and then baptizing them. Jesus tells the apostles in Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that is what they did. They went out, they proclaimed God's Word, and then they baptized those who began to follow Christ, showing outwardly what had happened to them inwardly. That's what baptism does. That's what baptism is for. Whenever we baptize someone, when someone is baptized, we are seeing outwardly what has happened to them inwardly. We submerge them in the water, which symbolizes their former self, which was enslaved to sin, being buried in Christ's death. And then we raise them from the water, and that symbolizes that they have been raised with new life in Christ's resurrection from the grave. So that's what you are seeing, and that's what you are proclaiming when you are baptized. You are saying, My former self is gone. It's dead. It's died in Christ. I'm a new creation. And so I come out of the water and I proclaim to you that I am a new creation in His resurrection and what He has done for me. So that is why we baptize those who follow Christ and that is why it is commanded by Jesus Himself that those who follow Him be baptized. It is a command. It is a command to be baptized when you are a follower of Jesus. We are to be devoted to that command and we are to be obedient to it. Making disciples and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The next thing that we see in verse 42 that these early Christians were devoting themselves to is the fellowship. The fellowship of believers. These early Christians were devoted to gathering together as the body of Christ. Listen to what these passages have to say about our fellowship with one another. 
Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He again writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The author of Hebrews in chapter 10 writes this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider to stir up, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now those are just a few passages of many that we see throughout the New Testament that call us to be devoted to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So to the one who says, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, I ask the question, how can you be a Christian and not want to be gathered together with God's people? How can you not want to? To be a Christian is to want to be gathered together with God's people, to want to be devoted to them. Do you not love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because in order to be obedient to those passages that I just read, you must be with God's people and you must be fellowshipping with them. We must be doing everyday life together. That's what that looks like. And that's what the overarching image of the people of God is in the New Testament. Now, I realize that there are Christians that because of disabilities or illnesses are not able to meet together with the body of Christ. You know, for whatever reason, they are not able to. And in that case, we are to go to them. We are to be seeking fellowship with them. You know, checking up on them, see how they're doing encouraging them in their illness, in their sickness. But just not wanting to gather with the people of God just because you don't want to or because you don't want to submit yourself to a local body of believers is just plain disobedience. And you need to examine your heart before the Lord and confess that and ask Him to give you the desire for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because to be a Christian is to want to be gathered together with God's people. The fourth thing that we see these Christians devoting themselves to in verse 42 is the breaking of bread, which I think means not only fellowship meals, gathering together as believers, sharing meals together, 
fellowshipping together in that context, but I also think that it means the Lord's Supper. And even if it's not particularly meant here in this passage, there are plenty of other passages in the New Testament that show us that we are to be devoted to the Lord's Supper in our gatherings. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So in Paul saying that is implied that we are in some shape, form, or fashion regularly partaking of the Lord's Supper until He comes back. We are to be partaking of it and remembering our Lord until He comes back and ushers in the kingdom fully. Now, we're never told how often or a specific pattern of how we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Neither Jesus nor Paul says. We're not told. We're just commanded that we are to be regularly celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so the pattern that we practice here as a church family is that the first Sunday of the month, every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what our pattern is. Now, there are other churches that may celebrate it every week, or they may celebrate it twice a month, or whatever. It's okay, as long as you are regularly participating in the Lord's Supper. Now, I would probably give caution if we were only doing this like once a year, because this is supposed to be a delight. We are delighted to participate in the Lord's Supper. And if you're only participating in it once a year, then you're not remembering your Lord very often. And you're not delighting in the supper that He has given you very often. So we are to do it regularly, and we are not to be putting it off for an extended period of time. Now, the final thing that we see these Christians devote themselves to is prayer. We as Christians are to be a praying people. You could pretty much say that prayer is our lifeline. If you are a Christian, you are to be praying. And you are to be praying in a way that shows that you are totally dependent upon God and His providence and in all that He provides for you. Listen again to these passages. Paul again writes in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. So the way that all of those pieces of armor work 
is if you are putting them on prayerfully. If you're not putting them on prayerfully, then you could basically put a picture in your minds of somebody putting on cardboard as armor. It's not going to do you any good. As soon as it gets wet, it's going to fall to pieces. We are to be prayerfully putting on the armor of God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now we as Christians love that passage, don't we? You know, the, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Well, what Paul is showing us here is that you're not going to have that peace unless you're praying for it. So you can quote this passage all you want, but if you're not being a prayerful Christian, then you're not going to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Because it is only found at the feet of Jesus, going before His throne in prayer. That is the only place that you're going to find this peace. The last passage Paul writes in Colossians chapter 4. He says, Continue, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So we are to be devoted to prayer, brothers and sisters. We are to be a praying people. If we're not devoting ourselves to prayer, then we are living as if we don't need God's help. We're saying, we've got this. We don't need God. Now, we wouldn't say that with our mouths. You know, if somebody was to ask you what you were dependent upon, you would say, I'm dependent upon God and all that He does for me. But if you're living a life filled with prayerlessness, then you are showing by your life, you are saying with your life that very thing, that I don't need God. I don't need to pray. I've got this. That's what we are saying with our lives if we are not devoting ourselves to prayer, if we are not regularly going before the throne of God and pleading our cause before Him. So then, let us be careful to be watchful, as Paul says. Let us be watchful in prayer that we are devoting ourselves to the things that we see the apostles and the early Christians devoting themselves to. They have laid the example out before us. Let us follow the example that the Lord Jesus Christ has Himself laid out in His Word for us to follow in order that we may be gathering together in a way that first and foremostly pleases God and represents our King, Jesus Christ, well. Because again, that is what our purpose is as the people of God. I'll close with this last uh, comment. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church had been doing a lot of things that were displeasing to God. And that's why Paul wrote the letter. And Paul, in that letter, is telling them, you are to be organized. You are to be putting the Word of God central. You are to be devoting yourselves to the fellowship. You are to be partaking in the Lord's Supper well, in a way that pleases the Lord. You are to be singing songs that bring glory to God. So that when a person comes among you, they don't think to themselves, you know, these people are crazy. This is disorganization. But that when they come among us, they see Christ being made known. They see Him represented. And that they would then therefore have His witness portrayed to them through us, even in our gatherings. Not just in our evangelizing. You know, we think sharing the gospel, we go out to share the gospel. But we are in fact also sharing the gospel here this morning. We are to be the city that's set on the hill shining brightly. And if we are not doing these things then we are not shining our light very bright. Father, we come before You and we thank You that You have laid everything out, the example that we are to follow as we gather together as Your people. We thank You that You have laid all of those things out for us to follow so that we may know that we are pleasing You, that we are representing the Lord Jesus Christ well and that we are making Him known, even in our gatherings. Father, I thank You for this people, my brothers and sisters in Christ that have gathered together. I pray that they would take Your words to heart, that You would fill them with Your words, that they would be their delight, that it would be like honey to their lips, that it would be sweet, and that it would fill them with joy. May we, as the people of God, be reflecting You well. May we be imaging You well. And may we be enjoying You here and now and then up into eternity where we will enjoy You forever. It's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen.